welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that is pretty much the president, chairman of the board, if you will, of Overdressers Anonymous. If you're wondering whether or not you're a member, don't worry, you'll know by the end of this episode. <sighs> we have a lot to talk about today. <laughs> I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 167, the third and final installment in a series about dress codes and uniforms. And once again, I'll be joined by Maggie Green and Ruby Gertz to break down this very complex topic. In this episode, we'll be sharing stories about dress codes and uniforms from the clothes horse community. We'll also learn about uniforms, particularly in Japan, where they are still a very big deal, and the laws around uniforms here in the United States. We'll also do some exploration of the 1977 best-selling book, The Women's Dress for Success book, which essentially laid down the framework for Every magazine article, blog post, or book about dressing professionally that has been written for women since that book was published in 1977. It has had such a just massive impact for decades now. The Women's Dress for Success book was written by John T. Malloy as a sequel to his wildly successful 1975 book, Dress for Success, which focused on helping men be more successful in career and life by dressing a certain way. Both books created the concept of power dressing, in which one would dispose of their own style preferences in favor of a wardrobe that implied success and trust. In Malloy's eyes, wearing clothing that would make one appear to be upper middle class was essential for social and career success. And notice that I didn't say upper class, I said upper middle class, because he felt that most people don't trust the upper class. To be fair, that does feel right to me. (laughs) Malloy's advice on dressing was not created in a vacuum. Rather, he polled people using drawings of outfits, quantifying their feedback into data that helped guide his advice. And really, that advice was more of a uniform than anything else. When he tells the readers of the Women's Dress for Success book to pledge to, quote, wear highly tailored, dark-colored, traditionally designed skirted suits whenever possible to the office, he's saying, yeah, get rid of any, any trace of your own personal style. His argument is that by making everyone dress to look as if they have the same status, that status being upper middle class, he is removing all symbols of class, effectively leveling the playing field. And I'm just going to say here, anytime someone purports to be leveling the playing field, I am immediately skeptical, especially when we're talking about clothing and dress codes and uniforms. Plus, Malloy was kind of a complicated guy whose opinions and statements kind of contradicted themselves. In 1978, for example, he told the Washington Post, Quote, many critics may charge that my approach to successful dress is snobbish, conservative, 
bland and conformist. And then, of course, he was sort of like, I don't feel that way. Then a moment later, quote, class conscious conformity is absolutely essential to the individual success of the American business and professional man. So, yeah, John, make up your mind here. But clearly, no matter what he might be saying to the media, his feeling is that there is one way to dress and that's that, at least if you want to be successful in his version of whatever success is. Malloy himself was born into the lower middle class in Manhattan. He taught prep school, and while he was doing that, he made extra money doing research into the correlation between wardrobe and the success of a teacher. And he parlayed that into a career coaching people on how to dress for success. It wasn't just the books. He also held seminars that cost $1,500 a head. This is back in the 70s. So we're looking at probably like, I don't know, I'm, I didn't do get the calculator out here, but probably five to $6,000 in today's money to attend these sessions where you would learn how to dress for success. In the early aughts, he actually wrote a book called, get ready for it. Seriously, are you sitting down? Why Men Marry Some Women and Not Others, which bills itself as, quote, finally, the code has been cracked. Discover what it really takes to catch a husband. It's exactly what you thought it was, right? I read a lot of different commentary on that book, and it seems, without reading the book itself, it seems as sexist, ageist, and fatphobic as you are probably imagining. But once again, he's bringing alleged data to the table. But one thing I noticed is that I don't know the si the sample size of people he's surveying here. Like, is it five people, 500, 5,000, 50,000? He doesn't even lay that out in the books. So I don't know how helpful this so-called data is. So yeah, he's bringing this data again to tell women how to finally land a husband. It's hard to imagine why Malloy felt that he was the person to give that advice. But then again, he took it upon himself to tell the world how to dress for success. So it might just be the kind of guy he is, right? <laughs> or was. I'm not really sure what Malloy is up to these days. His social media hasn't been updated since 2020, and his website no longer exists. But I couldn't find an obituary either. So I don't, I guess he's just stepped back from public life. So as I mentioned, I haven't been able to find out much about Malloy's surveying techniques for any of his books, but I will say that the Women's Dress for Success book really lays bare the misogyny, the fat phobia, the classism, and the racism of the late 70s. One might ask, how much has the world changed since then? I don't know. You can't tell if it's the inner thoughts of one not-so-great dude being shared in this book or the secret feelings of an entire society, because really both would make sense. Much of its content leans heavily into policing women's bodies. There's a lot of not-well-veiled conversation around weight and age throughout the book. Some examples of many, many sections from the book include 
bedroom or boardroom, your choice, in which Malloy argues that many intelligent professional women focus too much on being sexy, thinking that it will get them ahead in their career. Not really sure who actually thinks that, but you know, okay, go off, John. (laughs) What other gems does this book contain? Does your background hurt you? Should women imitate men? Sexism? No. Yes, that's one section of the book in which Malloy writes, defending the advice he is sharing, of course, quote, sometimes this specifically involves dressing to make the right impression on men. This is not sexism. That's like in italics. It is a stark reality that men dominate the power structure in business, in government, in education. I am not suggesting that women dress to impress men simply because they are men. It is not sexism. It is realism. Once again, in italics. There is a long chapter called Dressing to Attract Men. Okay. And there is advice specifically for black women, telling them that they need to dress even more conservatively and expensively than their white counterparts in order to gain the respect of white men. I guess this is more of Malloy's like realism that white men are running the show. So everyone else had better do whatever they can to curry the favor of white men. And, you know, I wish I could say that time has passed and the business world has changed, but I've spent the last year and a half being talked over, cut off, and even verbally abused by rich, white, straight, cis men at work, where I found that the only way to play along was to shut up and smile and just be cute, right? So maybe we do still live in Malloy's world. But here's my challenge to all of this. Should we be doing what Malloy advises, you know, conforming to the expectations and preferences of white men? Or should we be challenging that power dynamic by dismantling the existing white male dominated power structure? Right. His solution is just conform and everything will be fine rather than, oh, I don't know turning upside down this power structure that also benefits him as a white cis male. I'll be sharing more from the Women's Dress for Success book on social media this week. I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on it. And we're actually going to get the conversation with Ruby and Maggie started with the first chapter of that book. So let's jump right in. Today, we're going to talk a lot about uniforms, but before we jump into our conversation about uniforms, I was very excited via the magic of the internet to be able to get pretty fast a copy of the 1977 book, The Women's Dress for Success book, which Pat called out in the last episode. This book was written by John T. Malloy. It was his follow-up to his bestseller, Dress for Success book. I guess that was for men, although it never explicitly said men, It was, but I guess it was geared towards them. And uh, I just started to look at this book because it arrived this afternoon, but 
I was telling Maggie and Ruby before we started recording that I wanted to read a little bit from the introduction because this is, this is a very intense book. <laughs> like, for lack of a better adjective, the introduction, the title of the introduction is The Mistakes Women Make and How to Correct Them. Uh, it's just like, let's just oh. get this up, right? So... This is the most important book ever written about women's clothes because it is based on scientific research, not on opinion. The advice in this book will help women make substantial gains in business and in their social lives. It should also revolutionize their clothes buying habits. Are you ready for a really hot take? I know that wasn't, that was a little (laughs) bit of a hot take. Get ready. Most American women dress for failure. Whoa. Rude. I have said that before about men, and research shows that it applies equally to women. Women dress for failure because they make three mistakes. Are you ready for what they are? You have any <laughs> guesses? Oh my gosh, Ooh, no. Too sexy, I... too modest, and <laughs> too trying too hard. <laughs> okay, you actually are hitting on some points, but maybe using like slightly more modernized language. I will tell you, like this book was written in... As if the, uh, I don't know, like the women's movement never existed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> One, they let the fashion industry influence their choice of business clothes. Two, they often still view themselves mainly as sex objects. And three, they let their socioeconomic background influence their choice of clothing. The only reasonable alternative is for women to let science help them choose their clothes. Oh, oh, please, please. I'm ready to be mansplained, too. I know. Tell this me book about is, the science. This book is so mansplainy. The results <laughs> of wardrobe engineering can be remarkable. By making adjustments in a woman's wardrobe, we can make her look more successful and better educated. We can increase her chances of success in the business world. We can increase her chances of being a top executive. And we can make her more attractive to various types of men. yeah (laughs) so he has i want to share this little story that he has which is very i'm just gonna this is all very offensive if you're not offended already well get ready to be an accounting firm called me in to work with a promising young woman who was having trouble executives of the firm outlined the problem the woman had all the academic credentials and was a star tax consultant when she worked at the home office but when she went to clients companies offices to work on their books and advise officials the executives invariably ignored her sound advice what do you think is the problem here (laughs) well don't worry i'm gonna tell you When I met her, the problem was obvious. She was 4 feet 11 inches, 92 pounds, blonde, and, in quotes, cute. She was 26 and looked 16. I decked her out in every authority symbol her tiny frame could hold. Dark suits with contrasting white blouses, silk scarves, brimmed hats. She even went several steps further, including wearing glasses with heavy black frames. Severity carried the day. Clients listened so well that now she is one of the few women partners in the firm. Not every businesswoman need transform herself from fawn to barracuda. 
As the following story shows, the woman, a sales engineer, was five foot eight inches and big boned. She started her career in the Northeast, but was transferred. After her transfer, she was approaching customers in South Carolina wearing dark suits and lugging an imposing, masculine looking attache case. Not many were buying. I put her in light colored suits and dresses and traded in her bulky attache case for a more feminine version. She went soft, southern, and successful. Better than 25% more successful, in fact. How? How the fuck do you measure success on a quantitative scale like that? That's my first thing. This guy's all like, I'm using science to fix you. And I'm like, no, it seems like you're using a lot of misogyny to dress these women. Uh, Yeah, pretty wild. And I just wanted to leave with this. Letting the fashion industry influence your choice of clothes is a whopping mistake. Any woman who thinks the fashion industry has has her interest at heart is woefully wrong. The industry is interested in her pocketbook, and it will sell her, often at inflated prices, anything that will make money for the industry. All right. John is his name. Dear John. John. Wait, let me double check here. Yeah. John T. Malloy. Dear John. <laughs> There, there is one, one note on which we can agree, and then is that final, yeah. those final few statements about the fashion industry. I'm like, oh yes, actually, that is true. I agree with that. Support that 100. percent A broken clock is right twice a day, right? Isn't that what they say? <laughs> yeah. Um, there's like, there are like quizzes in here and scenarios and at the end they're sort of just like here are the basic guidelines like if you are too lazy to read this book he doesn't say that but he -hmm. says i'm not going to read all of these but there's never and always always a great way to give advice never be the first in your office to wear a fashion fashion fails never wear anything sexy to the office if you wear something sexy it is not your brain you are selling Never wear the knit polyester pantsuits. Never wear pants when you're dealing with men in business. Never dress like an, in quotes, imitation man, which was basically like, don't wear a suit. Uh, Let's see. Never buy a fad item. Never take off your jacket in the office. Never wear a vest for business. (laughs) never have more than one drink at a business meeting uh and then it's like always wear plain pumps to the office always wear neutral color pantyhose to the office always carry an executive cold gold pen always always oh my god check this book before you go shopping (laughs) but this is offensive I've been taking furious okay. notes over here. Yeah. Like, I had the longest exhale of a deep breath I've ever <laughs> taken at one point. And you said, when you quoted the line about um, being more attractive to men, oh, which seems yeah. in direct opposition to this piece of advice about, you know, making ourselves sex objects or, like, looking sexy at work, like... Okay, so we want to be attractive, but not sexy. I don't understand the difference here, but... Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean... Intentional. 
ambiguity, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's just like everything we talked about in the last episode. It's like, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, because it's all like just subjective hyperbole. Like none of it is really measurable, despite this guy saying it's scientific. And at the end, the very last page is that you can, for a mere $23, uh, you can order an assessment of your wet wardrobe and get advice from him. It comes in six weeks. And he oh will give God. you feedback. Based, You have to tell, this is what you have to send him. Height, weight, age, skin coloring, I know, hair color, personality personality type, like what does that even mean? Your business, profession, present occupation, company affiliation, and education and career target. And then he, you send him that, he sends you a questionnaire, you take that, and then he gives you advice based on that for $23. Although outside the USA, it's an additional $1.50. So I know this was published in the late 1970s, but did anyone else get this, like, I don't know, this creepy urge to be like, let's ask him, you know? Like, <laughs> I, was cleaning, I was like, is it still the phone numbers still or whatever? The funniest part is that this is a hardback book. And the last page is a coupon that you cut out of it to mail in to get your profile. It's so odd. I mean, I I skimmed this and just looked at a lot of the images today. And they were just like, some of them I was like, okay, that might be helpful if you don't know what some of these terms mean. You know, like something we talked about with the Indeed uh, direction that was a little confusing and there weren't Mm -hmm. images on the indeed site which i was like that's a huge miss um so some of these i'm like you know that could be helpful but it's just like like for example you he is really hung up on this idea that you should never wear a midi length skirt um and you should never wear anything ruffled you shouldn't have long hair i mean these are like relics right like his feeling is the longest your hair should be a shoulder length um, you should never wear boots. It's, you know, you shouldn't carry a purse. You should carry a briefcase. Although he made that one person switch to a more ladylike briefcase. Well, she was, oh, she was doing business home. in the South. Yeah, she well, was 25% more successful. <laughs> she was doing business in the South. That was the connection I heard there. Yeah, South Carolina. Yeah. yeah. You got to soften yeah. it up a little. Oh, Which, my gosh. yeah, yeah. So this book is, is a piece, a piece of work. Let me tell you. <laughs> Yeah, the comments about being big boned too, oh. like that is such like a, uh, like such a euphemism. Oh for, yeah, like for you know sure. plus size or yeah. not dainty and feminine enough. But then the other woman was too dainty and feminine. She looked like a sixteen-year-old girl, you know. Yeah, so. starting with the <laughs> the height and weight is like yeah, right. I mean, this book first... is a relic. You know, what was interesting as um, in my journey to find this book, I the first Google I f- did of it, the first search result was Amazon. Because, you know, Amazon definitely pays for all the Google search words. And mm-hmm. I went to, I was like, oh, I would love to see what people think of this book. Because my original goal was to try to download a digital version of it, which does not exist for, I mean, I think now pretty obvious reasons. Uh, but I found reviews on Amazon where people were like, this book is great. It's very, you should give it to all the women in your life and I was like okay so ostensibly this book has been written these reviews have been written in this century right yeah you read this book and your takeaway is this is useful (laughs) (laughs) 
maybe it's like those fake Amazon reviews where they're just like paying someone to like make it sound mm, authentic, yeah. you know? John T. Malloy, what are you up to? <laughs> oh, anyway. wow. Well, I'm curious um, if if there in your search if there were other like similar books that came up or if this is like. I don't know. I would assume that there were probably a lot of similar texts written like around the same time. And, and since then too, that like the content has maybe been slightly updated. I'm curious if you came across anything else that looked interesting in your search. I definitely saw a lot of versions of this subject matter in the eighties and nineties. And interestingly enough, then the books were written by women, which I feel was probably Mm. like a strategic decision. Like now you can be, you know, because, like, why is this guy telling you what to wear, right? Um, it did seem like there were a lot. As far as I can see, you know, without actually seeing the book's IRL, it's the same bullshit. It's just served in a slightly different way, maybe with a slightly different aesthetic. But it was, like, all... It, honestly, I think that was most... What was most interesting to me is, like, looking at the covers and the few times I could see images, uh, the, the fashion direction was the same. Like, it was still, like, yeah. keep your hair short don't wear frilly things, but don't dress too masculine. It's like the same thing rehash over and over again. And I mean, like real talk, there are still women's magazines that are putting out this kind of content periodically in their issues. And it's the same thing. It's like, don't be sexy, but don't be too masculine, but don't be feminine, but don't be too like a boy, you know, like it's just (laughs) like, it's just such nonsense. And I really doubt that there's this much hemming and hawing over what men should wear to work. I'm I'm picturing, so I pulled up the book so I could see what the cover looked like. And of course, like everyone featured is thin and white. Uh, I wonder if that was a common theme you saw in some of those oh, other historical yeah. for publications. For sure, for sure. Um, yeah. And there are, like I said, other books that came later that were like, here are more ways that you can, you know, this is a more modern take on what you could wear to work. But as far as I could tell, it was the same, just the same, like over and over again, very thin white women, uh, wearing like basically the same suit over and over again, you know? Um, I mean, it does, you know, we talked on the first round of this series about how the great masculine renunciation is it the renunciation yeah yeah it's kind of like been going strong for a few hundred years now and Mm -hmm. it is true when you look at the way at least you know various forms of media think women should dress for work it's the same like nothing has changed uh i doubt that people are really churning out books about this now because like what you would just learn this on the internet (laughs) but yeah but there was definitely a lot of like like, they took this tone of, like, girlfriend's guide to getting dressed for work. You know, like, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. So, like, uh, the, here's a great one. Power dressing. Like, it was that kind of mm-hmm. stuff, you know? Um, how you can, like, you know, be successful by wearing pantyhose or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I just I just looked up the, the images for the book as well. And I, I about halfway down on my search result page, there's an actual photo of John T. Malloy. Oh boy. With like his hands on the shoulders of like a young woman. No. In a and he uh-uh. is like, he is like kind of like, uh, like dusting her shoulders in like this very creepy way. Oh. Like it's almost like he's like dressing like a mannequin and like flu the shoulders, but it's like, 
a woman. <laughs> it's crazy. I'll, I'll, I'll send you the link. To yeah, this, send to it to us. Because it's like, what? Anyway, in case you wondered what he looked like. It's very paternalistic. You know, it's totally. very like, you ladies don't know what you're doing, but fortunately I'm here to save the day. And to be fair, <laughs> he originally w- did have a lot of success with the the original dress for success, which essentially was for men. And I'm sure someone was like, you know, it would be really great is if you made a book for women. They're doing jobs now. Oh my gosh, I see this image. This is so Do you creepy. See it? It's, yes. I know, it's creepy. Right? It's very, very creepy. I'm can't. saving this photo right now. Okay, I'm glad you found it. I wasn't able to download it. So. <laughs> um, the the, yeah. the fawn to barracuda analogy definitely oh, sticks out. So gross. Um, it it reminded me of a story. Surprise, surprise. Um, but it also just like on a general note, the fact that humans are being compared to animals in this way. It makes me think of, like, some of the famous office catchphrases are, like, centered around violence. Like, yeah, mm. kick today's ass. And, like, mm-hmm. I don't I don't know. There's there's something there. but um, Or, like, you're a killer, you know? Like, be yeah, a killer. killer. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, totally. You know, I did notice on the back of this one copy where he is brushing off the woman's shoulders and or whatever he's – I don't know what he's doing, adjusting her. I'm not sure. <laughs> it's one of the bullet points of the things you will learn from this book is uh, – wait, let me find it again – do I know what to wear to attract that certain man? Certain is in quotes. So it's sort of like, hey, we're going to dress you for work, but also to get men, because that should be your other goal. And that's actually, of the, like, maybe 10 bullet points here on the back that are supposed to entice you to buy this book, that's number two. The number one is, do I know what to wear to get that promotion? And then it's, like, attracting men. Uh, Yeah. That reminds me of a post I just saw on LinkedIn the other day. And this, for the record, (laughs) y'all... It's 2023. Mm-hmm. The headline was something along the lines of who you marry dictates like your level of success and career, oh. which is so, I mean, fraught, right? There's, there's a lot that's problematic with that statement, but I was like, I had to go back and double check that it wasn't like a joke or satire, like playing off of some of this outdated language out of that time period. It's like, oh my God, why is this on my feed? How did, why did you think that I am the right person for this content? Well, any final thoughts on John T. Malloy (laughs) and dressing for success? (laughs) We, there's, there's no way we can cover like that. That's a a future episode. Maybe we'll. Oh yeah. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. That'd be a little fun. Uh, Start this uh, dress for success book club. (laughs) it's it's pretty it's pretty pretty offensive okay um so we're gonna get started today by first listening to a voice message from kimberly howdy amanda and the closed source community my name is kimberly and i'm a longtime listener of the pod i was super excited when i saw a call for voice memos on dress code as i have a lot of thoughts on it I've never worked in a job that had one, but my schooling from kindergarten to 12th grade required me to be in dress code. Over the years, it got more and more strict, and when I finally graduated, the only options were a black or white polo shirt and black or khaki slacks or skirts, as long as they were deemed long enough. Having to conform to these rules for so long has had a lasting effect on me, 
and six years out of high school, I still feel like I'm trying to find my own personal style, since it wasn't something I could explore or express growing up. Overall, I find dress codes to be wasteful regarding money and clothing, as well as students' time, and often unfairly enforced. I was upset at the idea of having to buy clothes that I didn't like and that I wouldn't wear outside of school, even before I knew about how much waste happens within the clothing industry. And now I'm even more upset to think of all the polo shirts, cardigans, and khakis I donated to Goodwill after graduating that have become someone else's problem somewhere else in the world. As for wasted time, at my school, there would be intermittent dress code sweeps, where the teachers would have to stop teaching and walk down every aisle of the classroom, checking that each student was wearing to make sure that they were in dress code. If not, they would be sent to in-school suspension for the rest of the day. So the lesson was interrupted, and a student would miss out on the rest of their classes for being out of dress code. Things like this made me see the dress code as more of a power play over us than something that was supposed to help us succeed in quote-unquote professional environments. And of course, the girls at my school were monitored more closely than boys, having to stand up in the middle of class with their arms at their sides to see if their skirts hit below their fingertips, and even in gym class, not being allowed to wear low-cut shirts or tank tops with spaghetti straps. I understand that in some places, a dress code is necessary, especially in the workplace. At a job I had working farmer's markets, I had a t-shirt with the farm's logo on it that I had to wear during those shifts, which made sense because it was how customers recognized me as someone who could assist them. However, I think a lot of it comes from a place of wanting to force people to conform, especially in regards to ideas of professionalism that are rooted in white supremacy, ableism, and adherence to strict gender roles and expression. I am really grateful that now I get to wear whatever I want and express myself authentically through my clothing. I realized a couple of years ago that I actually really love clothing, I just didn't have the chance to explore that for a long time. Clothes Horse has been a really important component of my new relationship to clothes, and I'm super excited to hear this episode when it comes out, even though I'll probably skip over this bit since listening to myself talk is so mortifying. Thanks, Amanda! Learning to listen to be okay with the sound of your own voice takes a really long time. I mean, I'm like three years into clothes horse and I'm finally like, okay, hearing my own voice doesn't make me cringe. So (laughs) that's my (laughs) advice for everyone. Just keep recording yourself talking and forcing yourself to listen to it. And in time, you will learn to be comfortable with the sound of your voice, maybe even like it. Yeah. So I, I mean, one of the recurring themes of what Kimberly was talking about was waste, right? Like wasted Mm -hmm. time, wasted clothing, even just thinking about kids going to in-school suspension, which I don't know if your schools had that when you were growing up, but mine did. And it felt just like such a phenomenal waste of everyone's time to put kids in a room all day that was basically a study hall. Like, why? Why? Um, and especially for uniform violations, it just or dress code violations, it feels like why are we de-emphasizing education in favor of dress code enforcement? Like, what a waste! Yeah, I, I really liked what Kimberly said about it feel, feeling like a power play because I mm-hmm. think that's truly what it is, right? It's about like superiority and people like like getting it's it's like falling into line right which unfortunately is kind of part of education it's like learning how to fall into line it is it is told yeah yeah it's punishing people for not you know yeah for not following the rules it definitely made me think about a number of my clients who 
come to me at various points in adulthood and they're like, where do I even start when it comes to style? Like having been robbed of that autonomy in like early stages of development, like Kimberly shared, right? Like they graduate high school and are like, where do I go from here? How do I even dress myself? You know, I just, I wanted to draw attention to that because I think First of all, Kimberly, you're not alone. Like, know that this is a, a struggle that that comes up for a lot of people, whether they were required to wear uniforms or had a strict dress code. You know, some something in those early years like prevented them from accessing this really cool thing, which is clothing, shoes, and accessories. Right? Um, yeah, it, it makes me sad um, that. Like she didn't have access to that earlier, mm-hmm. but also makes me really excited that now, like, <laughs> you know, they've got that opportunity. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. You know, something that I was thinking about since the last time we spoke, and I don't have an answer here, is if we talk about dress code specifically for school, let's skip the adult ro- world right now, just schools in general. Do, uh, one, do we think dress code should exist at all in school? And two, if so, like, what would the parameters be? Um, because a lot of, you know, what seems to at least come up on these conversations on social media about dress codes in the past two weeks is that uh, it's all about, like, covering bodies, basically, and, like, mm-hmm. modesty. There's a lot of, like, weird purity culture baked into it. And it's hard for me to see how people seeing your bra strap or wearing spaghetti straps affects your ability to learn. And I can see that some dress code policies are very safety based, you know, like the kinds of shoes you can wear for gym class, for example. Right. Um, or others maybe to ensure that you know people are warm or stay dry or what have you. But where do we draw the line with dress codes? Like in an ideal world, when we talk about school, thoughts i mean safety is like the only thing that comes to mind right outside of that what is the point really especially like i don't know like educational systems teachers staff principals everybody in that building is like presumably you know they have the children's best interest in mind and they're shaping young minds and building the future and all of those things and like I I don't know, dress codes as a general rule seem counterintuitive to that. Like, where's the creativity, the confidence building, the autonomy, and like, I don't know, encouraging them to learn about themselves, self-awareness, self-advocacy, all those things. I'm just hearing like, conformity, like, this is an arbitrary rule structure because we're the ones in power and you are less than because you're you're young i don't know um it reeks of like projection like previous older generations imposing outdated and antiquated expectations which i mean frankly it's harmful i know i said that in our last conversation but yeah i mean (laughs) as evidenced by adults who come to me and they're like my whole concept of my body in relationship to clothing and how I show up in the world is fucked up. And it started with, you know, all these memories from 
middle school, elementary school, all that. So I, I think I think that's a really great point, Maggie. I think that it, it continues this cycle of a lot of bad ideas. You know, like a different example, but for many of us who really struggle with food or our bodies or self-esteem around our bodies, you know, like those of us who are really in diet culture involuntarily, a lot of that comes from our parents, right? Like I grew up in one of those houses where my mom was always on a diet. We could only have diet soda or crystal light. There was a lot of snack wells and lean cuisines and just all of this fretting about food and weight. And when you're around that as a child, you carry that into your adult life. And I think it's very similar when we talk about policing what kids can wear and what is acceptable to wear, um, especially when they're based around really like covering up bodies, like modesty, that kind of thing, that kind of stuff you carry into an adult adulthood, no matter what your gender expression is, because it bakes all these ideas in there about who should be covered and when, and like shame, I guess, about bodies, you know? Yeah, I think when you're talking about like like parents and parents' fears and how they're like kind of projecting that onto onto teenage bodies, it makes it makes me think a lot about just like I mean, like if you really I started my mind first went to actually like the TV show Euphoria. Um, just because everything that people wear on that show, I don't know if you've seen it, <laughs> but it's like so like blatantly outside of like what any high school dress code would ever be. Like I'm oh. talking like booty shorts with like cutouts totally. and like yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. But I was like I was thinking about that and I was like, well, I was like, well, maybe we do need to draw the line somewhere, right? Like, what if people would, like, that is maybe, like, distracting or something. And it's like, but then, like, teenagers, like, are exploring their sexuality. They are exploring, like, how their body, like, in, you know, like, has an effect on the people around them. And it's like, to to police the clothes is so reactive because if we just taught people from the get-go to have like a different relationship to their own bodies and to other people's bodies like I don't even think that would be an issue that would come up like I'm thinking about like countries where people are allowed to like drink at a younger age where they don't just like go absolutely crazy because they finally have a chance to do it it's like people might think like you know maybe it would be like oh I'm gonna try out this like look that's like maybe skewing to be a little more revealing or a little more like I don't know sexy or something and they might be like okay I try like I tried it and I'm good but I, I feel like we do sometimes provoke this like almost opposite reaction where it's like especially with teenagers where we're like your sexuality is bad your sexuality is bad like hide it at all costs like it's terrible and then they go flying in the opposite direction where they're like well then I'm gonna like wear this outfit that like you know looks like uh you know, inspired by like the aesthetic of like sex workers or something, you know, and it's like, I don't know. It's yeah, that's a really I think that's such a hard question of like, where do we draw the line? It's like, I think we just need to do everything differently, like from the get go. Um, (laughs) That's my answer. (laughs) It's true. It's true. Yeah, no, there's no easy answer there. But it does seem like we know that how it's going right now is probably not great. And it really just reinforces a lot of attitudes about bodies and sexuality and body types um, and makes people more uncomfortable with their own bodies or the bodies of others. And it's just sort of a cycle that's going to continue 
until there is a change there. Because we're like, this is the time of your life where your brain is being molded forever. You yeah, know? yeah and, it's high stakes. <laughs> yeah, it really is. It really is. And, you know, the last thing I'll just say on that is like, Schools should be in the business of educating people, right? And the fact that so many resources like time are spent on enforcing these kinds of things, the fact that kids would be pulled from class and miss educational opportunities based on what they're wearing is absurd. It's just the opposite of what school is for, unless it's sort of like, this is where you learn to fall into line. Yeah. And maybe that is part of it. I don't know. Any final thoughts there? Maggie, you got anything? I don't think so. Just like a, a recap of what's the point? <laughs> like the, the intended purpose is not actually like the results that this is yielding. Yeah. You know? Yeah, totally. It's just like a lot of distraction. And it, it says, especially it's like ironic because oftentimes when we hear about like, oh, no bare shoulders, no tank tops, no one can see your bra strap, no tight jeans, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It is like because it's distracting. But it really seems like the obsession over this is possibly more distracting. Based on just like all of the comments we read last week on Instagram, I was like, wow, what a phenomenal distraction. <laughs> Let's take a moment to thank some of the incredible small businesses who keep Clothes Horse going via their generous Patreon support. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycled clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriela Antonis is a visual artist, an upcycler, and a fashion designer. But Gabriela Antonis is also a feminist micro-business with radical ideals. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the world needs. If you find yourself in New Orleans, Louisiana, you may buy her ready-to-wear upcycle garments in person at the store Slow Down at 2855 Magazine Street. Slowdown NOLA only sells vintage and slow fashion from local designers, and Gabriella's garments are guaranteed to be in stock in person, but they also have a website, so you may support this woman-owned and run business from wherever you are. If you're interested in Gabriella making a one-of-a-kind garment for you, DM her on Instagram at slowfashiongabriella to book a consultation. 
please follow her on Instagram at slow fashion Gabriella. That's Gabriella with one L. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. High Energy Vintage is a fun and funky vintage shop located in Somerville, Massachusetts, just a few minutes away from downtown Boston. They offer a highly curated selection of bright and colorful clothing and accessories from the 1940s to the 1990s for people of all genders. Husband and wife duo Wiley and Jessamy handpick each piece for quality and style with a focus on pieces that transcend trends and will find a home in your closet for many years to come. In addition to clothing, the shop also features a large selection of vintage vinyl and old school video games. Find them on Instagram at High Energy Vintage, online at HighEnergyVintage.com, and at markets in and around Boston. Vagabond Vintage DTLV is a vintage clothing, accessories, and decor reselling business based in downtown Las Vegas, Nevada. Not only do we sell in Las Vegas, but we're also located throughout resale markets in San Francisco, as well as at a curated boutique called Lux and Ivy located in Indianapolis, Indiana. Jessica, the founder and owner of Vagabond Vintage DTLV, recently opened the first IRL location located in the Arts District of downtown Las Vegas on August 5th. The shop has a strong emphasis on 60s and 70s garments, single-stitch tees, and dreamy loungewear. Follow them on Instagram at Vagabond Vintage DTLV and keep an eye out for their website coming fall of 2022. Okay, well, let's let's shift into talking about uniforms. Um, we're going to talk about work uniforms primarily, but we're going to touch on school uniforms as well. And I, you know, I was motivated to do a little bit more digging into 
the scale of uniforms as an industry and what happens to them uh, by a few for a few reasons. One, some of the messages that we're going to discuss today, and even the one we already listened to from Kimberly, really speak about how when the need for these clothes no longer exists, meaning you quit your job or you move to a new school or whatever, those clothes go to the landfill, right? That stuck in my mind. And then on Friday night, I was recording a future episode with someone who works in the field of EPR and textile stewardship. And Mm. she talked about how phenomenally wasteful the uniform industry is. And that's one area that a lot of people don't think about that actually reining that in and making it more circular would make a big impact on the tech on the textile waste stream. And I was like, wow, you're right. That's true. You know, because yeah. we're going to listen to some other messages and read some other messages that touch on that. But it, 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 I was like, yeah, this is right. So uniforms are a huge business here in the United States. About $11 billion worth of uniforms and related workwear are sold each year. That's not including school uniforms, which are another $59 million. The UK buys about 39 million uniform garments each year. And about 90% of them end up in the landfill after use because very few companies, very few employers repair and return them into circulation. It's sort of like a dead end with the with the employee, often because the employee does pay for at least part of the uniforms. There's very little repair and reuse in this area. So something I had wondered about was like, who pays for uniforms, right? And they kind of come in two categories. There are They're not exactly a uniform, but they kind of are. Like, for example, people at Target have to wear red shirts, right? Or Mm -hmm. when I worked at Starbucks, I had to wear khakis, later black pants. I was responsible for buying those. Those were my own pants. I I suppose the conceit there is that, you know, the Target employee is welcome to wear a red shirt outside of work. I could have worn my khakis whenever I wanted. But we know that probably no Target employees ever wear red outside of work. And that color's, like, ruined for them forever, right? Definitely. Right, right. So, like, we know that, like, this, it's it's kind of like a, I don't know, it's it's not true that these are going to get a lot of wear, and I guarantee the average Target employee leaves their job and, like, fills a garbage can with with red T-shirts because they're like, I hate red now. It represents something to me. (laughs) And I say that because I follow that Target subreddit for Target employees, and everybody is really stressed out and unhappy. So I know they're not wearing a lot of red outside of work. So here in the United States, the Fair Labor Standards Act does not require employees to wear work uniforms, but... It allows employers to mandate them. Makes sense. According to the wage and hour division, employers employers who require uniforms should pay for them and deduct them as business expenses. However, that's like, that's not the law. The law isn't that employers should pay for it. It's just suggested. And simply Mm -hmm. what happens is in most cases, the employer might subsidize the uniforms, although it's kind of questionable how much, but the employee themselves bears most of the expense. And then it's it's theirs to deal with, repair, laundry, yeah. that kind of thing. Um, now, if there's any safety-related workwear, they, the employer is required to pay for that. Here's where it gets mm. a little bit more complicated, because I have definitely had, like, the uniform deducted from my first paycheck, right? 
Employers who require their employees to pay for their own uniforms must pay them at least $7.25 per hour after deducting the costs of the uniform from the paycheck. So mm. if you if your hourly wage is eight twenty five an hour, God help you, uh, the Ooh. employer can only deduct one dollar toward that uniform. However, they could deduct that from every paycheck for the whole year until they recoup your share of it. Ooh. So I know, I know. So there are some states out there where they are required to play, pay a greater for- portion or provide them all together. But in general, the uniform is, it's the responsibility of, of the employee. And uh, now flight attendants, their situation is slightly better. I mean, think about like their uniform is super dialed in. It's, and it's expensive. I worked a few years ago as a consultant for a company that does just completely upcycles, uh, basically like industrial stuff, um, and, and mm. excess from the, uh, the like footwear industry and things like that. And they did, a big project with Delta who was retiring all of their fleet's uniforms. So pilots, desk, you know, uh, counter agents, flight attendants, you name it. They were retiring everything and they were doing this whole new uniform design designed by uh, Zach Posen, which I'm just going to say like, is not very cute. (laughs) Just my opinion. (laughs) The older ones were way cooler. And so all of the uniforms were sent to this company and they turned them into, you know, bags and pillows and travel accessories and whatnot. And I will tell you, they were some of the nicest garments I've ever touched. Like, so mm. high quality and, like, meant to last. Like, really wonderful fabrics and, like, great trims and zippers. Not the kind of clothes wow. I generally get to touch working in today's fashion industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Just really, really lovely and uh, no doubt expensive. So... For most airlines, attendants are required to purchase and, and like flight attendants are required to purchase an, indi- an initial set of uniforms and luggage, but their employer usually pays for upkeep, repair, and any replacements. There's often hmm. also often a dry cleaning allowance for it that the company covers. So it's not quite the burden that it could be because I can only assume if you're a full-time flight attendant, yeah. That's a lot of clothes you need to get started. Yeah. I would, you probably need to travel with like a spare set too. I'm thinking like I have a friend who's a flight attendant and she'll like go somewhere, you know, and like sometimes they'll stay over if it's a long flight and come back the next day. And I would yeah. assume you're probably changing uniforms in between yeah, those flights. I hope so. I get so gross and sweaty on planes yeah. just in general. Imagine if you had to like go serve drinks and put people's bags yeah, away right? and all the other Being stuff. Yeah. Around. Yeah. 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 Now, I I thought that was really interesting because when I think of uniforms, my mind immediately goes to flight attendants. But we know there are all kinds of uniforms out there, whether we're talking about like service industry, some retail jobs, um, you know, some manual labor positions, factory jobs. There are a lot of uniforms out there right now. It does seem as if, though here, at least in the United States, the vast majority of what we would think of as, as a uniform is really just the employer telling the employee that they have to wear a certain color or a certain kind of garment. So it's not officially a uniform, which makes it 100% the employee's responsibility. And I am assuming that is a money saving measure. It probably is. I'm, I'm also wondering of those employers who do pay or who charge their employees, like over the course of multiple 
working hours or over the course of multiple paychecks like for their uniforms like i would probably assume also that that employer is like profiting off of that like mm. if that they probably place a bulk Mark order for yeah. those polo shirts right and they're probably yep. paying like three to five dollars per unit and i'm sure the employee is paying like $25 or something, you mm-hmm. know, like, Oh, I'm sure. Right. Yeah. The, I, I, no doubt there, you know, uh, when I was a teenager, uh, working in Pennsylvania, every time you started a new job, you had to pay this like employee employment privilege tax or something like that. It came out of your first paycheck. It was $50. Um, Ooh. so I remember starting a job waiting tables where I had to, you know, get two polo shirts, which came out of my paycheck. I had to pay that $50 employment privilege tax, which is ridiculous. And so when I got my paycheck, it was for $0 and zero cents. And I, it was a two for a two week period, you know? And so like making uniforms, the employees burden is just, I'm sorry. It's just unfair. Like, like who has more money to play with here? It's not, it's not the employee, you know? So especially when you're first starting a job too, like I'm thinking how many people have like, you know, are looking for a job for a long time and living really, yeah. really, really, and then to have to like sacrifice your first paycheck is really awful. Like I, I, um, worked at a place that required everybody to purchase a respirator before their first day because sometimes we work with like toxic chemicals and stuff and the respirator was fifty (laughs) dollars and you really can't find one for cheaper than that and i had a coworker who was saying how like he had to like put it on a credit card because he just didn't have money to pay for it like prior to the first day of working so it's like it's very unfair and it really sets people back um before they're even like starting the job yeah, it's really unfair. Most people are not working because they're rich. <laughs> you know <Nope>. what I mean? <laughs> so another, like, something that has struck me every time I've gone to Japan is how many more people are wearing uniforms there and how the distinctive the uniforms are based on the job. And so, you know, even as a person who's just traveled there, I can spot someone in a uniform and be like, oh, that's one of the people who cleans the train or, oh, that's the person who works as the crossing guard or that's the person who sells tickets or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, because they're really, really distinctive and elaborate. They include like headwear, footwear, the whole rigmarole. And by the way, the people who clean the Shinkansen trains, they wear pink uniforms. They're like a really nice color. I, like they're very eye-catching to me. Um, but it's something Dustin noticed too. He was like, wow, there's so many good uniforms just even at the airport. Looking at all the different people in their uniforms. Like it is a country of uniforms. And so I did some reading about that. And uh, I found this piece, which I'm going to share in the show notes, that said, Japan was, must be one of the most uniformed nations in the world. Student uniforms are seen from elementary Entry through high school and sometimes even at colleges and employee uniforms mainly for women are worn are, are worn at workplaces ranging from tiny firms to giant corporations from lavish showrooms to little shops selling mobile phones and it is true after i reading this i was like yeah you're right it's always the women that I see in uniforms. And remember Hmm. when I talked in the last episode about getting on the train at rush hour in Tokyo and like all the men were wearing the same exact suit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Often like that's, that's like a pseudo uniform, which we're going to talk about in a minute as well. But the women in the office often are changing into uniforms there, but not the men. They're just wearing their suit. Hmm. Um, 
interestingly enough, like the, the reason for all of these uniforms ostensibly is identification, which makes sense. We've talked about that. So, you know, where someone works pride, it's meant to instill a feeling of pride in the employees safety totally makes sense and free marketing (laughs) (laughs) right um so one thing that i thought was really interesting is about 30 to 40 years ago there was a big anti-uniform movement in japan because people were like hey we're fed up with being stripped of our individuality. Like we want people to be who they want to be and wear what they want to wear. There was even a big push to remove school uniforms and let kids just wear whatever they wanted. Interestingly enough, the pendulum swung the other way and everybody's like, yeah, I'm totally cool with uniforms now, like bring it on. But Hmm. now employers are moving away from uniforms, especially in situations where there's no customer interaction. Because I think that's a really important thing to call out is that Office employees, primarily women, would go into the office and change into a uniform to go work at a desk, which is wild, right? (laughs) Um, Many companies stopped having their female office workers wear uniforms after the Equal Employment Opportunity Act came into force in 1986. This is from the same article. These uniforms came under attack as symbols of gender discrimination. Because once again, it was just women being asked to wear these uniforms and eliminating them was also in line with the business world's drive to cut costs. So the long time outfits that women office workers were expected to wear were called the OL uniform, the office lady. And you oh. know, we talked in the last episode oh very briefly about how like school uniforms have be, been fetishized. So was the OL uniform. Mm. You know, that like, surprise me. <laughs> right. I know. Right. Companies there were like, we're sick of spending the money to provide these uniforms. It's, it's money. We don't really need to spend. We could just put a dress code in place. But also if you, if a company in Japan requires uniforms, they're also required to have a special changing room for people to change into uniforms, obviously divided by gender. And that was another expense that they just didn't want to spend anymore. Like these are, I mean, and you think about it and you're like, yeah, it makes sense. You should do what they do here in America and somehow make money off of selling uniforms to your employees. Right. <laughs> but, uh, I thought even that there was a changing room, I was like, huh? Cause I've had a lot of jobs where I'm changing in the bathroom. I'm changing in the subway. I'm changing in the break room. Like there's no special place for changing. So the other aspect of uniforms in Japan is less formal, but it's still just as rigid. And it's this idea of pseudo uniforms, as in what you should be wearing based on what you do, what your age is, what your gender is, all of that. And so it can be what you're expected to wear to go to job interviews, what you're expected to wear to go in an office, what you're expected to wear as a mother of a small child. I could go on and on and on. The business suits are a great example where no one said, hey, everyone, you should wear, you have to wear a gray suit to work every day with a white shirt and a black tie. But that is what the expectation is more socially. And so that's what everyone wears. Um, And that's driven by a few things that I think are really interesting, knowing that 30 or 40 years ago, Japan was like, hey, let's be more about individuality. Because one of the biggest drivers of these pseudo uniforms is 
a lack of desire to stand out. Everybody wants to fit in, blend in. And that's because diversity and individuality are not the norm in Japan. No matter how many issues of fruits you read, it's really not how most people dress there. And that's why, actually, if you are a fan of fruits or any of that other sort of like Harajuku aesthetic, you should realize that it is like very revolutionary. Because I think before you go to Japan for the first time, you think that's how most people are dressing there. And actually, you can't be further from the truth that that's a small subculture of people who are very like brave and creative. Um, there's also this sense of failure avoidance. Basically, like if I lose access to an opportunity and like ruin my life or whatever because I was wearing the wrong outfit, I'll have to deal with that regret forever. So, what I'm going to do is wear what everybody else wears and then I can't be wrong. And then, lastly, all the retailers there are just churning out the same suits and business attire over and over again. It's easy for them. And no one cares because they're like, oh, you know, this is what I need to wear to fit in. Um, but it does further imprint these pseudo uniforms if you go shopping for something to wear for work or school or what have you. And it's the same thing that you saw on everybody else. Like, it's just like, oh, this is what I have to wear. So it sort of reinforces this sense of uniformity. I just pictured like um, in a lot of retail spots out here, out west, right in America, it's like career separates, <laughs> just like that idea. So it's like pieces and parts of all the same suit, but maybe it's that um, I mentioned the com- compulsory masculine trio of colors, like mm-hmm. gray, you know, gray, black, navy. Um, I mean, if that's all that's available for folks in terms of workwear. It, it makes sense. It sort of just feeds into itself. Yeah, yeah, it it really does. It just like it's like a cycle that just keeps repeating. Like, oh, well, we'll just keep wearing those colors because that's all there is, and it kind of makes not wearing those colors even more of an outlier. Because you're also like, where did you get like that mustard colored suit or whatever, you know? Um, and it is true. Like, I don't really buy a lot of clothes when we're in Japan. Sometimes Dustin does, but uh, it's because it's like when it comes to like women's wear there, it's just kind of like the same thing everywhere. Uh, and it's not really appealing to me because I don't want to wear Navy gray or black very often. Um, and so I usually only find things that are appealing to me in the more like teenager stores. Um, it is, it is interesting, but you do notice these uniforms. The first time I went, I was like, wow, all the women who have like a child under five have the same outfit. Mm. It's, it's incredible. I'm like, there's those pants again. There's those shoes again. Oh, it's a striped shirt, like over and over again. So speaking of uniforms and like, you know, kind of where they might come from, what happens to them. We have a great message from Amy that I was so delighted to hear because it's about a place that I have always wondered about, which is Trader Joe's. Because I always wondered, do they have to bring their own Hawaiian shirt? <laughs> right? Although I guess now they mostly wear t-shirts, right? Well, we're, we're going to find out because we're going to listen to this audio message from Amy. Hi. Uh, This is Amy, and I run I Need More Vintage. Um, On the subject of uniforms, I worked for Trader Joe's for 14 years, but I don't want to talk about Hawaiian shirts. 
No, this is about t-shirts. When I started back in 1997, you got five t-shirts in muted unisex tones with a small logo on the left breast plus one crew neck sweatshirt. This design lasted for five or so years. You got a new set every year on the anniversary of your hiring. After that, they put a band of flowers on the front. This design lasted for another five years, after which they realized that customers should be able to spot a crew member in a crowd, so they put flowers all over the shirt and the words crew member and bold type on the back, and they brightened up the shirt color. Why is this important? Uh, Seniority really matters in the microcosm of a grocery store, and there was a hierarchy to the shirts. Newer employees with the flower band shirts saw the old no band shirts, and it was inferred that the people who wore them were the veterans or the experienced longtime employees deserving of respect. This also happened if there were new shirt colors and you had the old colors. Occasionally, you would get store-specific special edition t-shirts or, oh my God, zip hoodie sweatshirts which made you super special if you ever transferred to other stores because you were the only one with that shirt and everybody was jealous. The politics in a grocery store are really the stuff of reality shows and it's bonkers how important these t-shirts were to me for a while. Uh, I wonder how many Trader Joe's t-shirts are in landfills. It's got to be a fair amount given that the company as a whole consumes hundreds of thousands of them a year and turnover in the stores has only gotten worse. What do people do when they quit? They don't donate them to Goodwill, usually. They put them in the trash or they use them for rags. Yeah, bye. So, you know, when I was sharing those wardrobe statistics earlier, I highly doubt they included t-shirts like this, uh, which is a whole other, I mean, you both know how I feel about these sort of like single use t-shirts, right? And, And like, think about how many of these are going out into the world every day. There has to be a report out there, like, for each corporation. I don't know Mm -hmm. if it's public information, but, yeah, like, Trader Joe's, we want to know. Show us those numbers. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I do, I mean, I think Amy has a really good point that, like, people aren't donating their shirts to the Goodwill. I've never seen a Trader Joe's shirt at a thrift store. Have either of you? No. Right. I I think the assumption is that probably nobody wants it, right? Like, I've had shirts (laughs) like that that are, like, have like a specific like university name on the front or like but it's, it'll be like for an event like I, I used to work in college admissions and we would get all these single use tees for like accepted students day 2021 or whatever you know and you're like I don't want like nobody wants that like I don't think that even has a use in the thrift store like you're just like yeah this is trash yeah yeah <laughs> I mean you could put it on and impersonate a Trader Joe's employee at the store, which does sound kind of like a fun prank. <laughs> well, also, if like um, she was saying, like the older ones are very 
maybe valuable because it like had some sort of clout um it almost made me think of uh i listened to a different fashion podcast recently um that was talking about the history of prison uniforms like speaking of uniforms but they were talking about that about how like they change them over time and so people who have the older ones it like is this huge signifier of like seniority and rank within this like enclosed social circle um, that people participate in. And it, it just makes me think of that, how it's like we attach like such symbolism and meaning to these things, but like aren't even intended that way. But it's just like how our brains work. We're like, oh, like, yeah, that's an old shirt from somebody that like they haven't made that shirt in three years. Like that person's been here forever. Like I'm going to ask them. No, totally. Or something. At first I sort of laughed the first time I heard this message, like, oh my gosh, people are so silly that they would like draw rank based on the age of the t-shirt someone was wearing. But then I remembered when I worked at Starbucks, someone who had been there longer than me had like a Starbucks hat. And I always (laughs) felt like, oh man, will I ever be as important as him and get my own hat? You know, like it felt like goals. Work here long enough to get a Starbucks hat. Um, okay, so next we have a message from Allie, who's experienced a whole spectrum of workplace dress codes and uniforms. I want to see if, Ruby, maybe you wanted to read it. Sure, sure. So Allie writes, I've experienced three different dress code environments. The first is the good old uniform, ranking in the same class as promotional t-shirts and swag. Funny how you never really see Burger King polos at the thrift store. (laughs) True. Very true. (laughs) Yeah. I wonder why that is. (laughs) On day one, I was handed a set of pants and or the polo shirt. Always ill-fitting and uncomfortable material. One uniform that you're expected to wear multiple times a week. I always felt cheap, dirty, and uncomfortable. When I would inevitably leave these jobs, the clothes would just sit in my drawer till I donated them. I know uniforms are designed to be ready for work and safety standards, but it's like you're supposed to feel exactly like the role you're there to play, a fast food worker or someone who is lesser in some way. Next is the luxury retail environment. For a long time, I was the operations manager at a high-end jewelry store. Everyone was required to adhere to the pantsuit and professional business attire on a daily basis, meaning four to seven days a week. Yes, it was a financial burden in more ways than one. No stipend or bonus is ever granted to look the part. And the idea that you will be more successful if you look more professional is so toxic. Add to that, I'm a plus-size woman, and business attire in my size can be difficult to find and always more expensive. Not only does this toxicity show up in fashion, but also beauty. Full face of makeup on a daily basis. It was all extremely hard on myself, worth as a woman. Don't get me wrong, I enjoy style. But this arena can place so much on image, it became nauseating. Not to mention, I was always rebelling against the dress code and putting my job in some perceived jeopardy because I had chosen a tattoo or pink hair. Don't even get me started on being a large-chested female. (laughs) Same. (laughs) Somehow, because I'm showing natural cleavage with a blouse, I'm to be shamed. Finally, my personal favorite, the business casual. And for once and for all, let's just include denim in this category. The ability to dress as your own unique individual is so important now more than ever. I'm more productive when I'm comfortable and I'm better able to connect with authenticity. Better yet, my fashion budget can be on my terms. You know, something that I was thinking as you were reading this is, you know, with all of this focus on these sort of non-uniform uniforms, like talking about what she had to wear at the luxury retail environment and what a financial burden it was. 
would it be better then to have uniforms in work be the norm? If, but of course, we know that somehow companies would figure out a way to make money off of employees. But like, I, I'm wondering, could it be less of a burden if it was just like, this is the uniform that you wear to work at the Chanel store or whatever? I know that that would never happen. But it would seem to me that it would take some of the financial burden off of the employee. If they, if the employer shared in that financial burden, right, yeah, like right. providing them not only the guidance, like this is the uniform and how to access it, but we're going to, you know, subsidize or take it out of your paycheck or whatever, um, or provide it for you all together. That would be amazing. It always annoys me that people at, like, say, Target just have to go buy a red shirt somewhere out in the world when the company could easily supply them, you know, and probably for a more affordable price for the employees. Or, I mean, the company could afford it anyway. But I know that there was a time where Target definitely was supplying the shirts, and then they were like, nah, just go ahead and get a red shirt anywhere. It's fine. And I know that that is, like, an intentional decision to pass that financial burden onto the employee. Yeah, there was a quote earlier in our conversation. It's like a a cost-saving measure, right? Yeah, yeah. Companies are trying to cut every corner they can. Totally, totally. So another thing that I was thinking about, and then we're going to listen to, but one of us is going to read a message from Liz. Uh, Could having a job that requires a uniform, at least now in 2023 here in the United States, could that be a signifier of class and is that an uncomfortable signifier of class although if you see someone out who's obviously like wearing like the white jacket of a doctor you're like oh that person's a doctor right that's one thing that stuck out down to the fabric that these garments are made out of it's like um you know like cheap polyester is what i'm guessing which Mm -hmm. feels terrible against your skin and Mm -hmm. You know, the the polo sort of as a style um, is, I don't know, according to some of these dress code standards we've read, right, is like um, certainly not like executive level respectability and like professionalism, quote unquote. So, yeah, that that's what stuck out to me, like the the crappy materials um, as far as like signifying class, like, yeah, the the branded polo, the association with like fast food and food service, mm-hmm. um, you know, being perceived as some lesser than way to provide for your family and, you know, survival. I don't know. And then like conversely, there are these uh, pseudo uniforms like the tech bro, uh, like, half zip, you know, like fleece half zip situation or, you know, other like branded swag that you might see someone who works for like a software company wearing. It's its own sort of strange uniform, although they probably got it for free. Definitely. (laughs) The pseudo uniforms you were talking about in Japan too, like all of the men wearing the same suit. Like I'm sure that there are places on wall street, like the finance sector where it is just like, an ocean of blue, gray, and black suits. Like everyone mm-hmm. looks the same. Yeah. Stockbrokers, you know, they have that same kind of aesthetic. And I guess the assumption there, you know, if you work with money, you have access to it. 
Um, <laughs> you know, you're like mm-hmm. top of the top of yeah. the ladder or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's also like, um, in regards to class, there's also kind of like a group of uniforms that we haven't talked as much about. That's like signifies like proximity to class, but also you're like mm. removal from it. Like I'm thinking of like caterers who have to wear tuxedos to like fancy mm-hmm. events or like, doormen or like you know people who have these positions where it's like they have to dress really nice because they're like working with rich people and like in proximity (laughs) to very rich people yeah and like those outfits are very expensive and those people are not making a lot of money but it's almost like this like opposite it's like almost the opposite of like the polyester polo shirt where it's like you it's your job to look really really nice because you're kind of existing as like a service provider in this like arena for the very wealthy or even like made uniforms. <laughs> Which, oh like, yeah, right. Like people still use those. Like, and also it's been fetishized. A lot of uniforms have been fetishized mm-hmm. when you really think about it. Um, maybe not like Burger King uniforms yet. It's probably happening right <laughs> now. Like someone somewhere has like a sexy version of a logo polo. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, like there are. I mean, there are very cut and dry versions of uniforms being a, like a clear indicator of class, like, for example, a maid uniform. But mm-hmm. I think there are more subconscious ones as well. So Liz said, I've had a job with a strict dress code. I worked for my then boyfriend's dad's environmental company on breaks from school from age 16 until after college, then worked there full time for over a year after graduating. This company had a strict dress code of khaki pants, light blue button-down shirts with the company logo, and closed-toe brown shoes. If you wore a jacket, you were supposed to wear one with the company logo on it. I remember correctly, men's faces were supposed to be shaved unless they had a quarter-inch beard, so if someone wanted to wear a beard, they'd have to grow it out over a vacation. I was told that this uniform was put in place because they had issues with folks dressing professionally. I think originally the uniform was only used by workers who went out into the field, but was expanded to everyone at some point before I started there. It was very likely influenced by the founder's time in the army. It made us look professional and recognizable when doing our work in the field. In the dilapidated neighborhoods where I worked in the field, wearing a uniform kept me from being questioned when entering abandoned buildings. At the office, there were no questions about what clothes were considered professional. I was self-conscious about how I was perceived in the uniform. It wasn't my first time wearing a uniform. I went to school in a navy blue A-line dress that tied in the back and had a white Peter Pan collar for seven years. But it was the first time I wore one that made me feel like I was dressing outside my class. It took a long time to put together that I not only felt ugly in the boring menswear, but I was also figuring out class presentation for the first time. Even though the uniform would be acceptable in any office, wearing the logo button-down shirt and being forced to wear the same thing every day made me feel different than my friends wearing their non-uniformed business casual, and it didn't feel at all the same as my prestigious private school uniform. So I thought that was interesting that there could be this differentiation, like from a class perspective, in terms of who has to wear a uniform and who doesn't. Like the freedom to wear what you want. Although if this dress for success book is to be believed, no one should have freedom to wear what they want. I can definitely relate to like the concept of like feeling like you're you're in your uniform and you're like hang meeting up with your friends after work or something that are like not in theirs. Like I feeling feeling that like sense of physical discomfort of like this isn't really 
term or there's like a differentiation here like your these other people are getting to like express something like a bit of their individuality and yours has been like completely stripped from you yeah it's like oh individuality oh well you have to be a certain class to get that Mm-hmm. Right, <laughs> especially the the part about the um the founder of the company uh, being uh, a veteran and like mm-hmm. having like a military background, like I can really see that. Like I've definitely um you know interacted with folks who have military backgrounds who like some of them really enjoyed having that dictated to them as mm-hmm. like this is something I don't have to think about. I just like do it the same way every single day. Um, and there's other people who feel like so stifled by that and like can't wait to get out and never do it again it's true for some people wearing a uniform is freedom freedom to think about something else right like Mm -hmm. they don't have to worry about it they don't have the responsibility the pressure of figuring out what to wear i did think it was interesting that somehow the dress code was like such an issue in this office that everyone had to switch to uniforms and like what does that mean (laughs) you know right it would be interesting to hear from others some other yeah. people that were there longer, right? Like if there was something like a particular incident that happened or like yeah. I was I was mentioning that like I have a I've had a coworker who was really hung up on dress code and would write people up for it or have conversations with them. And she would say, like, look, look, look at these photos I took secretly on my phone of what they were wearing and show me the photos. And I felt uh confused because I didn't see anything wrong with what they were wearing. (laughs) And I've like, actually like my brain stored those photos away and I'm still every day. Like, what was the problem? Is it because it was like, I just, you know, like I, I, like how problematic were what was the way people were dressing in the first place? I I don't know. I think it's like something that some people are just really hung up on. It goes back Mm -hmm. to the subjective nature of dress codes. I don't know if either of you felt this way, but instantly with the description of the prestigious school uniform like i got i got warm fuzzies like the idea (laughs) of an a-line dress with a peter pan collar like in a contrasting color is like i'm i'm still actually reeling from that because that spoke to me on a really deep level in terms of like style style choices and individuality i'm like oh that sounds like something i would wear (laughs) no i know but guess what it's not going to help you meet the right men, <laughs> according to John T. Malloy. But that's like totally an outfit I would wear to work, right? Uh, but it's probably too cute, or I don't know. I don't know. Reading John T. Malloy is making me realize why I'm not a CEO right now. <laughs> oh yeah, where did all go wrong? I mean, maybe for me, it's like my waist, my waist length hair. Maybe that's what's holding me back. <laughs> Even let him sleep your shoulders. <laughs> oh, that picture, I still have it opened, and it, like, disturbs me more with time. Definitely going <laughs> to so share creepy. that one on social media this week. <laughs> so creepy. So creepy. So creepy. If you're enjoying this episode, then this is a great time to remind you that my work here at Close Horse is made possible by the support of listeners like you, just like NPR, and these great small businesses. Please go give them your support. Blank Cass 
or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. New vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at wear underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns. Handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed. Made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at Republica underscore Unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnicware, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnicware in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnicware recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnicware offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity, future vintage over future garbage. Cute Little Ruin is an online shop dedicated to providing quality vintage and secondhand clothing, vinyl, and home items in a wide range of styles and price points. If it's ethical and legal, 
we try to find a home for it. Vintage style with progressive values. Find us on Instagram at cute little ruin. Is there a little bit of Italy in your soul? Are you an enthusiast of pre-loved decor and accessories? Bring vintage Italian style and history into your space with the pewter thimble. We source useful and beautiful things and mend them where needed. We also find gorgeous illustrations and make them print-worthy. Tarot cards, tea towels, and hand-picked treasures available to you from the comfort of your own home. Responsibly sourced from across Rome, lovingly renewed by fairly paid artists and artisans, with something for every budget. Discover more at thepewterthimble.com. Deco Denim is a startup based out of San Francisco, and it sells clothing and accessories that are sustainable, gender fluid, size inclusive, and high quality, made to last for years to come. Deco Denim is trying to change the way you think about buying clothes. Founder Sarah Mattis wants to empower people to ask important questions like, where was this made? Was this garment made ethically? Is this fabric made of plastic? Can this garment be upcycled? And if not, can it be recycled? Sign up at decodenim.com to receive $20 off your first purchase. They promise not to spam you and send out no more than three emails a month, with two of them surrounding education or a personal note from the founder. Again, that's decodenim.com. So Maggie, you talked to your clients, right? And you got some more like dress code thoughts, feelings for us. Yeah. So I, I run a fairly small but mighty Discord community. And in anticipation of our, our first recording, a part one, <laughs> I, I asked my community members to kind of weigh in. Like what, what thoughts come to mind for you about dress codes? Um, when have you faced like financial burdens or other barriers like tell, tell me everything so I had a few folks respond um, Lenny whose pronouns are they them shared I mean this this is definitely gonna echo a lot of the sentiment and consensus we've come to up to this point but uh, they say dress codes tend to be bullshit misogynistic body shaming and especially for minors totally unconnected to the reality of what is actually available for purchase Mm -hmm. in terms of clothing. They also feel like there's probably a way to communicate a vibe. Um, I'm interpreting that as like the branding piece, that free marketing we were talking about earlier, uh, a way, a way to communicate a vibe for the event or company without being gendered. Um, that also needs to be applied evenly. Mm-hmm. Uh, interestingly, too, we were talking a little bit about science. Our buddy John threw up the big <laughs> S word, science. Um, <laughs> so we have touched on like the idea of school uniforms, at least on the intent side of things, like leveling the playing field for students and having a positive impact on like learning capacity and productivity. Uh, Lenny shared an article uh, with a direct quote that there is no scientific evidence that school uniforms level the playing field uh, and no evidence that it has a positive impact overall on students. So there is an article from Parenting Science there about school uniforms specifically and what the research has yielded in terms of results. Maybe we can link that in the show notes. Um, 
another community member, Anne, whose pronouns are she, her, uh, shares about her experience with uniforms and dress codes, mentioning that, yeah, they definitely are a financial burden for many. Uh, she worked at an upscale department store in 1986 and was supposed to dress at the level of their customers, quote unquote. She says she received no clothing stipend and only earned about $4.50. That's $4.50 an hour back then. Um, basically, her paycheck went to purchasing clothing to work to earn a paycheck. Talk about cycles. So we're in a clothing store. We earn a paycheck. Only an earning only enough to purchase the clothing that is necessary to go back to work and earn that paycheck again. Um, she says, after I quit, I had a bunch of clothing that I didn't wear as the items weren't suited for my 15 year old self. Um, that's probably a retail environment. Uh, Deb, whose pronouns are she, her, had some thoughts, uh, about like, is there a time and a place for dress code? So we posed that question earlier, like, you know, uh, requiring uniforms, dress codes in general, what's the point? Um, Deb says, I do think there's sometimes a time and a place for dress codes, specifically around safety and security. I think we all would agree with that. She says, I've seen what happens when people wear open-toed shoes in manufacturing environments or in fast food settings, and it's not pretty. Some people don't realize until they get into an environment exactly how dangerous it is. Um, so Deb also shared about a, I think this is the world's largest aviation corporation. Um, one weird dress code related thing, she says, Boeing has or had a specific dress code for this very specific city located plant, and it was called Teamwear, she said. You had to wear it every day. While I never worked at that location, I sort of envied the simplicity of it. No one can judge you if you're dressed up or down enough or if you're wearing the company-issued Teamwear. Um, so similar to others who have shared, Deb says that they got issued a certain number of shirts and had the opportunity to buy more. Um, she said the team where she saw had enough variety that some of it appealed, but not all of it. <laughs> um, which makes me think like, I, I think we've mentioned it just briefly. Like what's the point of dress codes in, you know, the absence of security and safety concerns. So we haven't really talked about PPE. Mm -hmm. Although Amanda, I know you mentioned, um, it sounds like it's a federal requirement that if the work environment requires that type of gear that the employer must provide it. Is that right? Well, it is. But then Ruby said that she had to buy a respirator out of her own pocket. I was thinking mm -hmm. about that. So yeah. I wonder if it's different, like, you know, um, full-time employees versus contractors versus part-time, like if there are different, like technicalities and loopholes, um, it didn't sound like the that law was necessarily very specific. Um, so maybe employers are, I don't know, skirting around it somehow. Clearly I mean, they have. Probably. I mean, I don't want to name names, but I do know that someone who is in this conversation basically had to act as a mover for their company recently. So <laughs> <laughs> in terms of the safety gear, I think there's definitely ways that employers can skirt around it. Like what you were saying, Maggie, of like, 
hiring people on a contract basis. Like I know people that have worked in like construction type environments and you're not provided a lot of that stuff. Like if you're a contractor, like if, like maybe if you work for a company and you're like an employee, but a lot of times it's like, you're just hired on, on the fly. It's like, Hey, can you work tomorrow? And you're expected to show up in like boots and hard hat and with like gloves and like the goggles or whatever proper safety equipment. And that's like on you. Um, I have friends that have worked in spaces like that. And I've heard that that's like pretty common. Um, similarly with like farming type work, cause it's also like contract based or like, mm-hmm. you know, you're paid cash sometimes even. So it's like, mm-hmm. You just show up. There's no, like, record even that you ever even worked there. Like, you're just showing up. Um, and so if you want to be safe, it's kind of, like, on you. Or if you want to yeah. have the right clothes, it's it's on you. I'm trying to think, like, the closest experience I have with this. So I've worked in the construction industry a couple of different times on, like, the administrative side first and then on the operations side later on in my life. So certainly, like, my colleagues and a lot of our field workers were like, you know, PPE was a requirement. Um, it wasn't until, I guess, later on in my life, yeah, the the second construction industry job that I had where I was asked to do site visits, um, meeting with clients and things like that. And it was like this large general contractor type of environment. So there were tons and tons of inspectors and field workers and architects and like everybody was kind of under the same umbrella um Mm -hmm. and they had like an employee stock room where like just where you would expect to see coffee filters and like you know snacks and things like that there were hard hats in different sizes and we didn't see any boots um but there were definitely goggles and gloves and even as like an outside visitor it was just understood like before you go out to the field, <laughs> go to the, you know, supply closet and gear up and then mm. report to the site. But yeah, I don't think they tracked any of those things. It was just, you know, they had a specific budget allocated for it. And when they ran out, they filled it back up and it was kind of a, a free for all type of thing. But <laughs> That's not the norm. Sounds would like. you return? I'm curious, like if you would return that stuff, like um, some, like something like a hard hat. Like, I, I would think those are probably kind of expensive. Is that something you would like return when you were done with it, or you just that's like yours now? No, I mean we we did certainly as visitors. I don't know yeah. what it was like for employees, but yeah, I mean, I don't. know. I mean, I I would have done it because it's the right thing to do anyway. But imagine like. What the heck am I going to do with a hard hat and goggles and gloves after uh, this meeting? Halloween like, costume? Please. Come on. Oh, okay. True. I didn't think about that. But yeah, I'm like, here, take this stuff back. I don't, I don't yeah. need it. I don't want it. Yeah, it's interesting. It, f- it feels really luxurious to me because, I mean, these things are expensive, like you said, and they are such a financial burden for new employees. I think we mentioned the phrase in a previous episode. I don't know if it was part one or part two, but this idea of dress for the job you want. I internalized that phrase for my entire adult life um, and really like lived that out. I think I've shared like business casual environments, even more casual work environments. I would always like step it up a notch. You know, it was a thing of pride for me. So fast forward to I no longer report to a company or organization 
I am no longer beholden to an official dress code and I work from home, make my own hours, do my own shit, right? It's my thing. Um, I'm my own boss now. So what does dressing for the job I want mm-hmm. look like today, like in my dream job? So two, two examples. One is from like before I launched my business and I was beholden to those rules. The other is from like 2020 or 2021, <laughs> like very recent. Um, both involve Halloween. Uh, I showed up to what was my first construction industry job when I was working admin and compliance. It was Halloween day, fell on a weekday, and I came <laughs> to the office dressed as Tammy Faye Baker. Amazing. <laughs> Love it. I was in, in the rural south, so it was definitely um, a, a boundary testing, like, I'm pushing the envelope. There's a lot of conservative Christians and extremists in this environment, and I just want to see if I can, like, mm-hmm. make it through the day. Um, most people didn't know who I was. Um, the The biggest, like, office gossip was, oh my god, Maggie cut off all of her hair. Which wasn't true. It was a wig. <laughs> um, but the one of my, I guess, crowning achievements um, since launching my own business was delivering a client session while in Boy George cosplay. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, it just so happened I was working on my Styloween series. I had this client session and I didn't have quite enough time to like costume change between appointments and so before i turned my camera on i was like all right i'm here i'm showing up as my absolute best self like this time is yours but before i turn my camera on i just want to let you know (laughs) i am dressed like boy george right now (laughs) like the the feedback like initial reaction when i turned the camera on was amazing like if i could have framed the client's face in that moment it was it was everything. It was surprise and delight. And like, um, yeah, uh, she suggested that perhaps I charge extra for that <laughs> going forward. But it was awesome. Like, the idea of dressing up for Halloween w- was definitely frowned upon in a lot of professional environments. But it's mm-hmm. really cool to be where I am now and have that be part of the vibe, part of the brand, something that like, yeah, it might surprise someone. It might be kind of unexpected, but like it doesn't, I don't know, it doesn't strike as unprofessional at all. It's like this is totally, yeah, you know, it's, it's just me doing mm-hmm. my thing mm-hmm. and, you know, being my best self. So that's what happens, y'all, when you dress for the job you want. I mean, I <laughs> love that. That is life goals. I'm definitely going to dress up for Halloween this year now that I work for myself. Um. Okay. Well, I thought we could end with a little bit more from our buddy, John P. Malloy. (laughs) Um, So one thing he is really obsessed with is this idea that women overdress. Um, And I will tell you that uh, there is so much... Well, first off, what a wet blanket. Do people say that anymore? This guy is a real wet blanket. But also this stuff is just dripping in classism. And so he says... I mean, after railing against uh, overdressers, he cites mm. that uh, a fake organization he's beginning, he's going to start called Overdressers Anonymous. 
He says, oh, no. I know. Tests to see if you should join Overdressers Anonymous. If four or more of the following apply to you, you are an overdresser. So I'm going to read some of these, not all of them, because it's a long and boring list. But please, if this is you, uh, speak up as I go through these, okay? <laughs> That's good. Okay, number one, you wear jewelry in the afternoon that can be worn in the evening. What the fuck? Yeah. I don't even guilty. know what that means. <laughs> guilty. I think yeah. I'm guilty. Okay. <laughs> Two, over half of your shoes have open toes even when they're not in style. Wow. Judgy. I might be getting there. I live in Texas. <laughs> it's hot here. I don't know if I'd yeah. say 50%, but it's, it's dang close. Yeah, I got a lot of open-toed. Mm-hmm. You, yeah. you hardly ever wear low heeled shoes. I think no, we're, we're fine here. Okay, but this one, your glasses have rhinestones or other decorations. Oh my gosh. Come on. I wish oh, mine did. I kind of want to embellish them now just to be like. I, I definitely right. have a pair of cat eye glasses that have like little mm-hmm. yeah, in the corners. Because they're, they're cool. I love Overdressers Anonymous. Cool. I hope we all go on a cruise together. Um, oh, Let's see. Uh, You think you must run out and buy the latest items in order to keep up. I don't think that's either of us. Mm. You wear false eyelashes in the daytime. That's like, <laughs> I don't have the uh, manual's dexterity. <laughs> yeah, he. Oh, he's probably just. He's got the vapors over it. Um, That's really common now. I know. I know. I guess we're all that. overdressing, right? Because he's really obsessed with this idea that you would wear things that were in style or on trend. He calls them fad clothes, and like that is that's <laughs> how humans work. Right. Um, And false eyelashes or eyelash extensions are like definitely a part of that. Um, And then he's like, you know what? I've been beating around the bush for these past eight points. How about we just go with what I really mean for number nine? You come from a lower socioeconomic background than most of your social circle. Yeah. Yeah. What a jerk. What What a jerk. I want to know what John Malloy thinks of a practical clog paired with an athletic legging and a company t-shirt. Oh, I would love to <laughs> know. That is my current to... work uniform. <laughs> <laughs> my pseudo uniform, I should say. <laughs> I'm sure he hates it. Should we share what we're wearing? Is that weird? No, I think that's totally fine. Um, I worked from home today, and so I am wearing a muumuu, um, and I'm also wearing uh, purple Birkenstocks. And as an added bonus, because my, guys, this is TMI, but I get really dry feet because it's like hot and dry where I live, but also like it's just a side effect of having like thyroid issues. Uh, so I have these special socks on that really just cover your heel, and they have like moisturizer in them. Oh, nice. nice. <laughs> so that's my hot look today, everyone. <laughs> uh, so Overdressed. <laughs> Ruby, you're in a company t-shirt, leggings, and practical clogs. Um, Amanda, well, you're in a... Mo- oh, go ahead. Did I miss oh, something? I, well, I'm actually not wearing that today. Um, because okay. Okay, what are you wearing as today? As Amanda hinted before... Uh, my company has been moving, and so I anticipated doing a lot of sweaty physical furniture assembly today. Um, so I am wearing like a very kind of basic and boring uh, cotton tank top from the thrift store. Okay. Um, and a pair of black 
denim shorts, which I'm sure is a dress code. If there was a dress code, I would be violating <laughs> top it. And shorts? Denim shorts and athletic sneakers. <laughs> so yeah, hot looks. Excellent. Hot Not lifestyle sneakers. No, but I did wear <laughs> earrings. I did try to make it look a little funky, so I did put on some earrings this morning that okay. I'm, I'm sure that I would consider, you know, evening earrings, perhaps, because they're dangly <laughs> and they have a lot of colors. So. <laughs> evening earrings. I love evening it. Earrings. I'd be warm in the daytime. <laughs> I'm warm in the All daytime right. with athletic sneakers. Like, Ooh. Uh, you know. So, some, yeah. Um, I, I've got a powder pink V-neck cotton t-shirt, which is secondhand. Um, I'm actually wearing a bra, which is a rarity for Mondays. I don't ever have meetings on Mondays. Um, I have some capri length pajama pants that have a green background and like pictures of coffee, coffee beans and cups (laughs) of coffee. Um, and the pièce de résistance to really tie it all together i have my partner's old athletic slides sandals they're like the velcro <laughs> kind and approximately three sizes too big but i wear them around like house slippers so yeah we're style i've got pearl earrings though oh so my gosh my evening earrings nice. and nice. imagine <laughs> if john if john t malloy saw us right now <laughs> He'd be horrified. Horrified. He's turning yeah. over in his grave somewhere. I'm assuming he's not alive anymore, but maybe he is. Maybe, we're yeah. Just, we're begging for failure. We're destined for I failure. I know, I know. And we're never going to meet the right men or whatever it is he's promising <laughs> us. Um, <laughs> well, thank you, both of you. I think uh, I've had such a great time talking about dress codes and uniforms with you. And I'm sure we didn't exhaust everything that could be discussed, but I do feel like we hit a lot of it. It's definitely something I hadn't thought about that much in the past. And it's really like, I don't know, it's it's setting a fire on under me to like explore more topics like this in the future, because I think it's it's all part of a bigger picture, a picture called capitalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank totally. you so much for having us. Amanda. Yeah. Thank you to both of you. Thanks again to Maggie and Ruby for spending many, many hours talking about dress codes and uniforms with me. We broke the recording sessions up over a period of three weeks, and I am so grateful for all the time they spent with me, and I'm going to miss talking to them this Monday night because it's sort of like our standing date now. If you aren't following them already on social media, please go do that now. They are linked in the show notes and please do what you can to support their work because we are tremendously lucky to know them. Once again, it's about 100 degrees here in Austin. So I'm cutting this recording session short in the name of air conditioning. So thank you for listening to another episode of Close Horse, written, researched, edited, hosted, all the things by me, Amanda Lee McCarty. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating, maybe even a review on Apple Podcasts. More importantly, tell your friends. That's that's how Close Horse works, right? If you would like to support my work financially, which I would love because as you know, I left my job. Uh, you can learn more at patreon.com slash close horse podcast or find other links in my Instagram bio where you'll find me as at close horse podcast. 
Thanks, as always, to my other half, Dustin Travis White, for our music and audio support and for, you know, letting me turn off the air conditioning on a 100-degree day. That's a good partner. (laughs) All right. Talk to you all next week. Bye. Bye.